In spirit of reconciliation, AMSA acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respect to their elders past, present, and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. everyone, welcome back to AMSA Ampule, my name is Xiao. Today I'm really delighted to introduce Jessica Gregory from the blog Delicate Little Petal. Jess is a 27-year-old Australian living with hypermobility spectrum disorder, temporomandibular joint disorder, fibromyalgia, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, migraine with aura, and sinus tachycardia. She recently relocated to Belgium and is navigating an extensive treatment program in her new home abroad. She now runs Delicate Little Petal, a website where she writes about physical and mental health issues and hopes to help others avoid the same cycle of shame and isolation by opening up about her own messy journey to diagnoses. She is particularly passionate about advocating for the normalization of mobility aids and is tackling the harmful systemic issues that delay the diagnosis of invisible disabilities, such like her own. She is also an ambassador of help.co, that's H-E-A-L-P dot co, a social networking website that also provides crowdsourced health information to those with chronic conditions. You can find Jess on Instagram and Facebook at at Delicate Little Petal or on www.delicatelittlepetal.com. Today, Jess and I will provide more information on the patient's perspective, as well as discuss the importance of accessibility and inquisitivity in medical school. Well, thank you very much for being part of this. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. I'm really excited to talk about this topic. Amazing. Well, anyway, um, thank you, Jess, for being on the show. Welcome, everyone, to AMSA, and welcome to you, Jess, to AMSA as well. Uh, I actually had the pleasure of meeting Jess face-to-face because she used to live in Melbourne, um, and back then she sort of had a bit of a different life trajectory, and maybe that's something that we can have a talk about later on. I have to admit, at that time, I had no idea of your story, your disability. To me, I I met you through... um, my partner and he's a musician you're a musician um you can maybe have a chat about whether your what your music endeavors still are at this moment in time and a little fun fact about Jess is she used she did an OSCE gig so she was an OSCE patient what did you um I'm really curious how did you find the OSCE gigs the OSCE gigs so I have to say I only did it for a really short period of time so I'm not an expert on the subject but I thought it was really interesting and I um had no idea that that was a part of your training so I really liked the opportunity to participate in um how would I describe it just the opportunity to have that human side of medicine mm-hmm. yeah so I think I'm trying to remember what the um topics were that we talked about one of them was some kind of thyroid issue um and I remember being given a ton of information about um all the classical symptoms when people have um, hyperthyroidism and things like that. 
Right. Um, yeah. And there was a lot of information about very specific details I needed to include so that the um, students could make sure they could differentiate between that and other issues. Um, I, it was only, I think, I think it was fourth year students were the only ones that I worked in. So because I, I remember being told that it was they'd only done one year of actual clinical medicine. So it was kind of their first introduction to this part of their training. Oh, wow. So um, people were quite um, good natured, but a little nervous, to be honest. But I think <laughs> yeah. um, that's why I think it's really important. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I was just going to say, you know, if, I remember my first OSCE, I was just shaking. And actually, by the end of the whole thing, I cried. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> kind of the OSCE patient. I was just like, I was like, this is so overwhelming. <laughs> um, but look, it's quite amusing for you to tell us that story because uh, when we do our OSCEs, you know, our patients exist and they're there for like five minutes and we're like, mm-hmm. oh my God, like, you know, we got to show off all these skills and everything. And then as soon as it's done, you know, to us the patient just totally like existed and then just totally evaporates into thin air like we have no idea um who they are so it's really nice to hear you know it's you know the Mm -hmm. person behind it and um and it's really funny to uh learn about your experiences as well um was that so you only did it for fourth years and it was just for it was their first time did you say uh yes yeah. Well, I'm not sure if it was their first time seeing OSCE patients, but I, I just remember being told by the supervisor um, it they'd only done one year of clinical medicine. They were very um, strict on us on being very specific and consistent with details we included when we were talking to them because they really needed that. I mean, I don't want to say help because obviously it's based on things that conversations you would have in real life with your doctor, but mm-hmm. just to make sure it was really clear and doable for them because obviously they were still you know, in the process of training and there were still other areas of medicine that they hadn't um, studied in depth yet as sort of a person or like a patient or a consumer of the health system did it give you any insights you know I don't know if you want to dive into this this early in the podcast (laughs) but um something that sprung to mind when you said the thing about uh you've got five minutes with your patient and then they disappear and you never see them again Mm. that's a little bit of an exaggeration but um is something that I thought about a lot when I was writing my notes for today was I think one of the big problems with our current medical system is the fact that, well, limited resources, but the fact that a lot of doctors are overworked and they really only get that. I mean, I guess in most places it's 15 minutes, isn't it? In general uh, medicine look, it really, in GP world, you get, yeah, 15 minutes is sort of your average time. Yeah. And, you know, depending on your rotation, like in medicine, we're lucky to get 10 minutes per patient in surgery it can be even less so like sometimes I see the patient for less than a minute and we're out of there because the consultant is just you know we've got like 60 patients to look after in in a couple of hours and then they need to run off to surgery so yeah I agree with you I agree with you it is such a limited amount of time and um I think I think, you know, we, we want to give patient more time, but it's just there's a lot of pressure. But I guess let's have a chat about that more in depth. I'm sure you've had lots of um, lots of thoughts around that, uh, but maybe we mm. can start with sort of your journey. Um, Definitely. Yeah, because I started reading your blog, Delicate Little Petal, around about the time when I heard about it through James. Mm-hmm. Um, and initially I thought that something had happened in Belgium and... Mm-hmm. Um, and you had developed, you know, a sort of sickness then. But mm. 
through reading your post, I realised that, you know, things probably started at a much earlier age. What were sort of the key moments that have led you to where you are currently? Yeah, I would say your assumption is not entirely wrong. So I would say things reached crisis point shortly after I moved to Belgium. Mm -hmm. And I would say it had been building to that point for probably about two years before that. Um, But I actually started having chronic pain for the first time when I was 12 years old. So in terms of my journey, um, I was born in Perth in 1994. Um, So Mm -hmm. I'm 27 now. And when I was really young, I was always a really energetic and joyful child and I loved playing outside and participating in sports and things like that. And then, yeah, around the age of 11 and 12, I started having a lot of really bad um, unexplained injuries. Um, I had bursitis in both my hips. I had tendonitis in multiple places. I totally tore through um, the tendon in one of my ankles playing basketball, which was frankly just quite horrific I actually had to use a cane for several months even after I was off my crutches because it took such a long time to get better um and obviously those are all injuries that can happen to anybody but the unusual part about it was the frequency of them for me how quickly they were occurring after one another and the fact that Um, the activities I was participating in were just not proportionate to the severity of the injuries that I was getting. Right, right. Um, And that developed into uh, chronic back pain and I also started having a lot of joint dislocations. Mm -hmm. Um, I dislocated both my elbows trying to do the monkey bars at school just to give you an example. (laughs) So that, I yeah, I did kind of miss out on that childhood experience because that pretty much put me off that for life. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. I I would be very concerned if both my elbows popped out. Yeah, Um, exactly, exactly. And just to give um, sort of our more junior listeners out there, elbows are one of the sturdiest joints. It is very difficult to pop out an elbow. Um, especially how old were you when you popped out both your elbows? Uh, So the earliest I have a memory of it is 12, but from subsequent conversations with my parents, I definitely dislocated at least one elbow from around the age of four. Mm -mm, Because definitely from Mm. clinical experience, I have heard of uh, dislocated elbows in mm-hmm. a younger population, sort of around four or five-ish, you know, when when kids get really excited and then they hold on to their mum and then they swing them all the way around. You know, the whole- <laughs> oh, really? And it's like, oh, whoopsie, there goes an elbow. I have heard it in that context, but mm-hmm. at the age of 12, that's pretty rare because, you know, most of your um, bones and ligaments would have uh, strengthened by that time. And and uh, what, what, what ha- happened after that? Okay, so around that time, um, unsurprisingly, my mum took me to see a bunch of doctors. Um, yeah, I saw enough. a back specialist, a bunch of different physical therapists. I think there are a few other ists in there too that I can't quite remember because it was a long time ago now. Um, <laughs> basically, they just concluded that I had very hypermobile joints, um, mm. but they didn't uh, find any evidence of anything else wrong at that time. Um, and I started a Pilates rehabilitation program um, with actual physical therapists running the classes and that was really helpful for stabilizing my joints um and once I just got a little older too I have the I suppose gut feeling that maybe something to do with getting through puberty and the hormonal changes impacted me as well I just once I got a little older and into my later teens that aspect of my health got a little bit better um 
so I was okay for a little while there. Um, but in my last two years of high school, um, I actually suffered from secondary hypoadrenalism from HPA axis suppression. Um, I've been put on really high doses of steroids for my asthma, uh, in the couple of years leading up to that. Um, mm -hmm. and unfortunately when I expressed concerns at that time that that was causing some problems, um, I was very much dismissed and my cortisol actually ended up getting so low that it was undetectable in my blood sample. Um, and I was really, really unwell, like basically unable to my, to care for myself, having severe short-term memory loss, just not mm. mentally present in my life. It was really awful. Um, I'm so sorry to hear about that. Oh, thank you. I've had therapy. Um, and I think, um, I did really struggle to finish high school because of that, but I did eventually manage. And, and then I got accepted into the Western Australian Academy of Performing Arts, which mm -hmm. was fantastic for me because um, not only was it the course that I really wanted to do, and I had already found my love of music and trombone and knew that I wanted to pursue that professionally, but it also gave me the chance to have kind of like a fresh start and not kind of be like the sick girl that I'd developed the reputation for in my last couple of years of high school. And at the time, like, I felt like that was a positive thing. And maybe for my mental health, I needed that break from thinking about myself like that. But looking back, that kind of really spiraled into me um, kind of living in a state of denial about what was happening to my body. Mm. And because um, being quite dismissed by medical professionals in my teen years had a big psychological impact on me. I became very like resistant to consulting doctors about other problems too, um, which we can talk about more later if it's mm -hmm. appropriate. Mm -hmm. um, but I did, despite that, end up uh, when I got to that stage where my cortisol was, I know it's not technically zero, but uh, from a blood analysis perspective, it was <laughs> listed as zero. Yeah. Um, I ended up getting hooked up with a really great endocrinologist who um, treated me. And within about a couple of weeks, I felt like a totally new person. So that was really good. And um, that actually gave me the confidence to move to Melbourne, which is where I did my honours year at the University of Melbourne, which is how I met you and James. Yeah. 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 Um, and I, I really loved living in Melbourne. I had a lot of great performance opportunities, um, like both during and after my studies there. And I also got a lot more serious about developing my skills as a trombone teacher, which is something that I really loved and something that I'm thinking a little bit more now about trying to get back to now that I'm getting a little bit more stable in my well-being. Um, and yeah, initially, well, not even initially, actually, for the first couple of years, things were actually going really quite well for me there. But towards the end of my time in Melbourne, so my early to mid-20s, I guess, my dislocation started getting a lot more frequent and painful again, um, even though I'd kept up with physical therapy over the years. And I also just started having a lot of weird symptoms too, like um, a lot of dizziness and fatigue. And um, a good example of that would be like there were instances where I'd be getting on the tram on, I'd be on my way to work and I just suddenly have this really intense sensation. Like I was going to black out and I was sweating really profusely and things like that. I mm -hmm. actually had to get off the tram a couple of oh times. Um, I did go to a doctor about these issues a couple of times, but um, I was basically just told that I probably had post-viral fatigue because I 
did have a sinus infection before that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was pretty much brushed off and told that um, nothing could really be done for me. And to be fair, I think looking back, I didn't really give them a full picture of what was going on with me. I didn't really talk about the dislocations and things like that because I'd very much normalized what was happening to me with that. And I think I also had a lot of internalized shame about it as well. Um, I'd sort of developed the attitude from doctors and also from talking to physical therapists that if I had a dislocation, sort of like it was my fault for not doing enough exercise or um, what else did I write here? Yeah, mainly just for not doing enough joint stabilizing exercises. Um, And I was also met with a lot of disbelief too, like not disbelief that the dislocations were happening, but a lot of them were happening when I was sleeping, um, which obviously is not normal. Um, In particular, I had a lot of really bad shoulder dislocations while I was asleep during the night. And some therapists pretty much made no secret of the fact that they thought that wasn't how it happened, that I was covering up some kind of embarrassing story about how it really happened or something like that. (laughs) Which honestly, like, if anything, I wish wish there was a better story. Like, I wish it was something like, you know, I saw a mugging happening and I punched a man in the face. That's much better than just (laughs) I was unconscious, you know. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, I can't believe you. Um, yeah, I guess, look, from my very limited experience in healthcare, I certainly haven't heard of anyone who's dislocated during their sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's really unfortunate that you were made to believe that it wasn't really the case. You know, sometimes I think that we think our, uh, you know, studies and all the things that we read that's that's set in stone but it's not Mm -hmm. you know I think there's a really uh one thing that we can really learn from your story is the importance of really listening and believing in our patients I very much appreciate that I think that um actually one of the reasons I was uh really pleased with the idea of coming on this podcast is I actually find that younger or newer doctors are a lot better at this um And maybe that is a little bit of a bias that I have that might not always be true. But certainly in my personal experience, I, yeah, I love younger (laughs) doctors that no, that makes it sound like it's a fetish or something. But what I mean by that is I love being treated by younger (laughs) doctors in a professional and appropriate way (laughs) because I I do feel like they are a lot more um, open-minded and willing to really listen to the patient and perhaps more aware of the fact that um, sometimes things are complex and not textbook and that Mm. there are things that research is still emerging about and, you know, more data Mm. doesn't And I think one of the curses that a lot of doctors face is with age comes cynicism. And and I think that can unfortunately tarnish a lot of experiences that patients have had. Uh, and and being you know sort of a medical student going to turn into a junior Mm. doctor we actually do get the most amount of time with our patients uh, which is kind of ironic considering that your care is usually under the most senior physician or the most senior surgeon Um, but in the end it is the interns that you do uh, see a Mm. lot or the residents who run around the hospital a lot unless you go into the private hospital but that's a totally different system uh, but that's really, really mm-hmm. encouraging to hear that um, even though as young doctors 
we don't have the experience, at least we do have the ability to um, listen and be a little bit more open-minded. Definitely, definitely. So what's sort of happened once you got to Belgium? Basically around this time was when I had made my plans to move to Belgium. And, um, you know, I want to stress that the doctors that I did see prior to that, it, it wasn't that they were unkind or anything. I just don't think that we were having good communication, you know. I just don't feel like they understood where I was coming from. And unfortunately, I think I was already at a point where I was not maybe the best at being fully open about what was happening to me. Um, So because they said everything was fine, um, I really compartmentalised what was happening to me and pushed on with my plans to move to Brussels. Um, I was moving to do my master's degree in classical trombone there, which was something that I was really excited about and also because it was something I'd actually put off for health reasons previously Mm -hmm. I was really really determined that I was absolutely gonna uh, get there no matter what um which in the end I mean it had pros and cons because I I think the adrenaline and a few OTC medications really kept me going for a while and especially during the moving and flying process which internationally I mean it's just exhausting for any human you know I think like you could be in the best health in the world and be exhausted after that um yeah but once I settled in there um that's where things became quite frightening um my pain became really disabling um I stopped being able to walk upstairs and things like that and um I started having, um, you know, I'd had a lot of dizziness, but I started having full on blackouts, including once in a lecture, which was really quite embarrassing, to be honest with you. It was a real head desk moment. (laughs) Um, And I started having like some really big issues with muscle weakness too, and also involuntary jerking, which um, I'm sure you know a lot about playing an instrument. Um, through James and you know that that makes it pretty impossible to be a good musician especially for something like the trombone so I did have to drop out of my course in Brussels which was quite heartbreaking um, because prior to the deterioration of my health I really actually had been happier than ever with my progress and I was really happy with my classes in Brussels and I'd also found a really great mentor who really had my back and I think Um, had actually been very supportive of the fact that I wasn't in the best health. And I think um, if I had been a little bit more stable, um, he would have really had my back to help me still get where I wanted to go despite that. So that was a little bit of a, I think the phrase too little too late comes to mind. Um, But, you know, I've had time to make my peace with that now. Unfortunately, sorry, fortunately, I've had time to make my peace with it, but it was really hard at the time, you know, Um, However, the silver lining of me pushing through with my plans to move to Belgium was um, I actually just ended up uh, Googling doctors near me, um, (laughs) which we all know is the best way to find someone who's a good match for you. Um, And the the first person at the top of the list um, was just a doctor in my suburb, and she actually turned out to be really great. She is still the doctor that I see now two years later. So I had an absolutely huge stroke of luck. Um, She was really thorough and a really good listener. And I think what made the real difference was she was really willing to spend the time with me and dig into my whole history to look at the full picture of what was going on. Um, Of course, by then, the pandemic was in full swing. So even though this process started two years ago, um, I've only really made progress in the last, well, serious progress in the last six months because there has been a lot of waiting around and a bit of applying stopgap measures in the meantime. Um, 
But eventually, um, after getting referred on to the hospital here, I was diagnosed with hypermobility spectrum disorder, fibromyalgia, sinus tachycardia, temporomandibular joint disorder, and migraine with aura as well. Um, and I've also been referred on to have the genetic testing done for Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and mastocystosis, mas- bloody hell, that's a hard word to say, mastocystosis. You can tell me if I'm saying that correctly. No, no, I have no idea what mastocystosis is, actually. I've never heard of that. What is that? Oh, it's a mast cell activation disorder. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that's proving to be a long process getting those tests done, but eventually um, we'll get there, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, fingers crossed you get to know uh, a little bit more about what's happening mm-hmm. with your body. I want to know because um, having a chat to patients who come into the hospital and, you know, there's always obviously going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are definitely times where we can't figure it out mm-hmm. and we sort of send them home with like, look, you're feeling better now. If it happens again, go see your GP. Yeah. I want to know what it's like having a diagnosis versus not having a diagnosis. What did that feel like for you? That's a really great question. It was really life-changing and I, I can already feel the tears welling up in my eyes as I say this because... Mm-hmm. After struggling for such a long time without answers, it was incredibly validating Mm. to understand. Um, It gave me an opportunity to not only understand what was wrong with me and, you know, be able to implement some management strategies, but also to connect with other people who are facing the same challenges and have a bit more of a community and more people in my life who understood what I was going through. Mm. I also think realistically in our society, I just don't really think we're taken seriously without a diagnosis. I personally think it shouldn't be that way. I mean, obviously, in every case ever, symptoms always start before diagnosis. It's impossible the other way around. But I think um, that is really needed in terms of accessing better healthcare and other services that can help you too. Yeah. So that's really nice that your diagnosis has given you validation and I can see that it's been a positive thing. What made you, what what led up to the events of you actually starting the blog, Delicate Little Petal? Yeah, um, it was something that I had actually been thinking about for a really long time, um, but it just took me a little bit of time to work up the courage to actually bite the bullet and do it, to be honest. I think it actually ties into what we were just talking about. Um, What I realized was um, once I had my diagnoses, um, I had tons of services at my disposal. And part of that is the fact that the Belgian healthcare system is quite excellent. But I started a rehabilitation program. You know, I had access to physical therapy, hydrotherapy, um, a pain psychologist as well, which has been amazing and things like that. And Yes, those things have been great and they've helped me a lot. But when I actually needed that support the most was when I didn't have a diagnosis and I didn't know what was going on with me. And, you know, I understand you can't really be treating a problem if you don't know what it is. So I'm not going to pretend that I know how to solve this issue. But I just wanted to write about what it was like to be undiagnosed and the messier parts of the process that often don't really get the public spotlight. I feel like 
we hear a lot of stories about people who have had illnesses, serious injuries, or like other kind of perhaps traumatic life-changing events, but we only hear about it from the perspective of now they've succeeded and they're past that or in the, they're in the process mm-hmm. of getting past that and it's sort of like an inspiration mm-hmm. or success story. And, mm-hmm. you know, that representation is really important too because we do need examples of people who are past that hump and we need to know that it can get better. But, you know, it's not all like that, unfortunately. We need representation of what the middle yucky part is like and we also need people to talk about the fact that it is okay if you're not always successful or not always able to do the things that you want to do because of an illness or a disability. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about um, delicate little petal, I know one of your key taglines is living authentically with chronic illness. Has your perception of your health changed because you've been doing the, this blog and really sort of, I, I feel like it's sort of like an expression of your thoughts and for you to sort of go through the and, and reflect upon your journey as well. Yeah, absolutely. It has been very cathartic to be able to write about some of the things uh, that I've written about in the blog um, and great for processing my own feelings about it. The living authentically part was very important to me in terms of the message that I wanted to convey because I think it really marks like a change in the way that I'm living my life and the way that I see myself. So Mm -hmm. previously, you know, there was the issue of me compartmentalizing what was happening to me, which I touched on earlier, but it was bigger than that. It was like, um, you know, that Missy Higgins song about a triangle trying to fit through a circle. That's how I felt. Like I felt like I was so desperate to just be normal or perhaps normal is not even the right word because I mean there's tons of people out there who have some kind of chronic health challenge but I guess what I perceived to be normal at the time and my whole life revolved around trying to fix my perceived flaws or just push through them or ignore them so that I could live my life in a way um, that would match up with my able-bodied peers when I was studying and then working and I think that I don't want to do that anymore. I want to make the best of the skills and strengths that I have. And I want to make accommodations for myself about the things that I find harder because of illness. And, you know, I don't want to pick the most difficult, fastest lane in life anymore. I want to pick one that suits me and I want to play to my strengths. Like, I guess, working with the body that I was given rather than against it. And that's what it means to me. Like living authentically with chronic illness is, you know, you don't have to be, um, loud and proud about disability if you don't want to I mean I personally think that's great but I know it's not everybody's cup of tea but it's just about being like you know this is a part of who I am just like being a musician is a part of who I am being you know a partner a child a good friend all of those other things are parts of me too and it's just another part of my personality we don't need to treat it differently or as like a taboo topic or something we need to cover up you know yeah, yeah. And I definitely understand what you're saying, because I feel like a lot of us can uh, be pressured into sort of expressing this form of living, you know, I guess, sort of trying to show off that we have, we, we're living this perfect life, full mm. of happiness, full of grace. Um, and then there's another part of it where a lot of people are praised when they do, you know, when they give 110% to things. Um, mm. And I think a lot of us are compelled to now 
give 110% for everything. And that's just not possible because you're just going to run yourself to the ground. I completely agree. And I think I really fell victim to that style of thinking, especially when I was doing my degree. Yeah. And do you think that because of that style of thinking, um, it sort of led up to what happened in Belgium where you really felt so overwhelmed and your health started to sort of spiral? Absolutely. Absolutely. I do definitely think that um, chronic stress did have an impact on my pain overall. And of course, holding tension in my body um, isn't really very good for anybody's joints, but especially mine. And I think, yeah, like the pushing down of the symptoms and ignoring them and pushing myself a lot physically definitely made things worse. Mm. So now that you've come into terms with what, you know, the body that you've been given, I wanted to know what does your day-to-day life kind of sound like, I guess, not look like, we're not doing a video, but sound like? Yeah, so it does still vary quite a lot. Um, I've been affectionately referred to as a professional patient a couple of times. Um, I am still in rehabilitation, so that is my primary, um, thing that I'm doing. Uh, for example, next week, uh, so Monday, um, I have pelvic floor therapy. Tuesday is physical therapy. Wednesday, I actually have my initial intake appointment with the neurologist at a hospital. Um, and then Friday I have pain psychology. So I still actually have quite a few appointments. And then outside of that, I'll be fitting in my physical therapy exercises, um, my jaw rehabilitation exercises and a few other things like that. Um, plus working on the blog. Um, I do also volunteer for a company called help, which is a, it describes itself as a social health app and, it's a social networking site for people with chronic health challenges to meet other people with chronic health challenges, support mm-hmm. each other, share stories and advice. And we also do crowdsourcing of health information as well. So um, they, this program is still a little bit in its infancy, but what we're trying to do is collect information on things that have helped people with different health challenges Um not so much um, things that like you would go to your doctor for, like for a prescription, but more like lifestyle changes or just choices that you can make for yourself or things that you can buy over the counter that can help. Um, And I'm really passionate about that because I know for myself, I've actually found a lot of useful information through talking to other people about these things. tips and tricks and I really like the idea of us um, amassing all of that information in one easy to find place for people in the future. Mm, That sounds really good and is that sort of like a just a Belgian thing or is that internationally available? That's internationally available. Um, Oh wow that's yeah so it's uh it's an app that you can download uh the Android version hasn't come out yet but you can currently download it for Apple or iOS but and there will be an Android version soon so Oh, good, good, good. That's a really wonderful resource. And I think it's really um, supportive to hear uh, or comforting to hear that, um, you know, there are sort of all these social networks in between people, whether they can share their own experiences. I'm curious to know, through your uh, experiences, and I guess now through connecting to people or other people with chronic illnesses, 
do you think that the current definition or the current perception of what disability is like needs to change? I this I guess question stems from the fact that I don't know if you watched the Paralympics, which was literally just two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, whilst we're recording, I think when this gets uploaded, it'll be a little bit later. Um, and I think it's really interesting to see that majority of the people who are in the Paralympics has a physical disability, which I'm guessing stays quite constant. Mm-hmm. I want to know what you think of the the current knowledge or the current perception of what a disability slash chronic illness is. I think this is a really interesting subject, actually. So I'm glad that you brought it up. Um, A term that I've been seeing a lot lately is dynamic disability. And I think that's really great because it's a great uh, kind of palate cleanser for what you were just talking about, about how a lot of the disabilities that we see represented are very constant and perhaps I think in the case of the Paralympics especially, a lot of them are quite uh, visible. It definitely, you know, tends towards disabilities that are visible. And while that representation is really important, I do think that we are lacking in representation for some of the more invisible disabilities, as they're often Mm -hmm. called. Mm -hmm. And, Yeah, it's a really difficult subject because I feel like there's there's not really anything that I can say that would be sure to encompass all the different invisible disabilities and all the different ways that they affect people. I like to think of a disability as any long-term problem or difference or challenge that has an impact or limits your ability to do something in life. So that could be um, a long-term physical injury. It could be a physical illness. It could be a mental illness. Or, um, you know, in my case, it's not really just one thing. It's a combination of a barrage of a bunch of different smaller things that all add up to have Mm -hmm. a big impact on me. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And I know just now, you, before you were talking about, you know, your your week-to-week, day, uh, de- well, day-to-day life and sort of how you're pretty much in full-time rehab. I really mm-hmm. liked how you said you're a professional patient. <laughs> I think it's very sweet. And, and now combining it with this uh, notion of dynamic disability, I wanted to know, in your experiences, how do clinicians and healthcare workers go about treating people with dynamic disabilities and do you think that there's more that needs to be done? Mm. I think that that is something that varies a lot by the type of dynamic disability that you have and also by which doctor you are working with. So Mm -hmm. at the moment I am having multiple treatments which are quite different And the overall impact of those working together has been really positive for me. Um, But unfortunately, through talking to other people, I feel like that's not always the case. And a lot of people, I suppose, don't get the, I would describe it as functional support that they need. So they might Mm -hmm. be prescribed a medication for a specific symptom or problem, or they might be prescribed physical therapy for a specific injury or pain. But 
there isn't enough being done to address like how it's impacting them in their day-to-day life. I think something that doctors might consider doing differently in these types of situations is asking for specific examples of how problems are affecting patients in their day-to-day life. So, you know, for example, if I came to you as a patient and said, um, oh, I'm really exhausted all the time, that I think as a patient that I'm being clear, but that doesn't really mean very much in itself because, you know, we're all exhausted at one point or another for various <laughs> reasons. And, you know, if you if you said to me two years ago, well, how, you know, how is that affecting you? What's it stopping you from doing? And I said, oh, well, I have to crawl up the stairs because I can't walk up them. You mm-hmm. know, that gives you a much clearer idea of what I might need help with um, because I think a lot of the time, it sounds crazy to say that now in retrospect, but I just normalized that because I had just very slowly gotten to that point. You know, it wasn't like I just woke up one morning and couldn't get up the stairs. Um, and I think just, yeah, I think like if I had have been encouraged to clearly communicate those examples of how things were affecting me earlier, um, that probably would have sped up the process of my diagnosis and treatment, I think. Yeah, I think from from my point of view, I would definitely agree with that. Um, yeah, no, the, the amount of times especially in GP when you hear you know hey doctor I'm feeling really tired this is something that we can do about it it's so common that I think we ourselves also normalize that complaint so you know we we start thinking oh you know that that's a normal thing for people to be tired and and I have to say in this day and age especially with the pandemic happening you know things changing all the time Mm -hmm. it it's reasonable for people to be tired but definitely something that we can learn is asking patients exactly what they mean by they're feeling tired because had I heard that you were crawling up the stairs I'd be like okay that's not normal (laughs) um yeah and and yeah I I suppose from a patient's point of view because I myself I'm a consumer of health um Mm -hmm. it can be really difficult to fully open up and to know what exactly to say to trigger a response from I guess your clinician I actually got very interested into one of your particular blogs and I was wondering mm. if we could chat about it. Um, you typed up a fascinating uh, piece on fibromyalgia uh-huh. and you called, it the F, you called it the F word. Yep. I wanted to know what what inspired you to write that particular blog? So it was something that had kind of been uh, stewing in the back of my mind for a while, but um, I actually heard an interview on another podcast called Pretty in Pain, where they interviewed Melissa Corrigan, who is a fibromyalgia sufferer herself and also a disability advocate on social media, about her life with fibromyalgia. And she had a similar difficult journey to diagnosis like me. And I just felt like as great as that interview was, I had so many follow-up questions. So I ended up uh, getting in touch with her to ask her those questions. And I really enjoyed talking to her. And so I thought it would be great to share that information with everybody else and expand that into a full article on Mm -hmm. an explanation of what exactly fibromyalgia is. Um, Because unfortunately, there is a ton of misinformation on the internet. Um, and not, not even just, um, I mean, there is a little bit of willful ignorance, unfortunately, I think, but also just things like, um, you know, the technical definition of what it is and the diagnostic criteria has actually changed multiple times, even in just like the last couple of years. And, you know, articles or um, 
not articles, but I guess posts more lit- written by laymen get published on the internet and they're correct at the time. But five years later, they're not, um, they don't align with what current research and data says and they're still out there and they're still the first things that are coming up when people are searching what is fibromyalgia and that really bothered me. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, from from sort of a medical point of view, I think the fact that they're changing their uh, diagnostic criteria every couple of years just stands for how little we know about it. Yeah, absolutely. What did I just wondered... Do you think that um, people in health treat you differently because you have had the diagnosis fibromyalgia? Um, I would say fortunately in the case of my GP, no. Um, she was the one who actually brought that up as a possible diagnosis initially. And I feel like she is quite knowledgeable about um, the impact of that. I, I think the difficulty of something like fibromyalgia is it definitely won't kill you, but it can definitely ruin your life. And I think that's what's difficult is like, I'm very grateful that um, it's not something that's going to finish me off. Um, But yeah, my doctor really understood that it can still ruin your life without killing you aspect of it. (laughs) Um, So that's been great. Um, But yeah, I do think that um, people do tend to, hmm, I think people have a tendency to not be perhaps willing to look at other health problems if you have a diagnosis of fibromyalgia. Um, This is entirely based off my own experience, of course. But I really find that um, because it can cause such a broad range of symptoms, it can be really hard to explain to somebody that something else is wrong and you just know that it's different because you just know I'm not even sure how to explain it to you but it, it it's just like if you know that you feel different because you know your normal you know how your normal version of rubbish feels and you know this yeah. is a different this is this is a fresh um this is a fresh bag of rubbish that's being taken out now <laughs> right, right. So you, um, sort of know, you, you sort of know when um something is perhaps due to your fibromyalgia versus you know you're getting pains for something else in a yes exactly that's a much more eloquent way of describing it that's all good that's all good um I've I've had a very lucky opportunity to have chat or have little chats to lots of patients with fibromyalgia and that diagnosis which is why I was so interested in learning about it obviously I do know sort of the the darker sides and, and and also the really positive sides of having that diagnosis and how clinicians interact with patients with fibromyalgia which is why I was so curious which I guess brings us to if you're ready to have a talk about it what sort of happened during your teens because I think that people with chronic illnesses do tend to come with a lot of trauma and a lot of bad experiences with healthcare and I think a really dangerous thing is they can be so traumatized by the experiences that they don't come and seek help in time. Yeah, I totally agree. I think, yeah, it's a very sad issue because what you've just said completely aligns with what my experience was, to be honest. Mm. I would say that um, the situation that impacted me the most in this regard was when I had uh, secondary hypoadrenalism from HPA axis suppression, which it was diagnosed when I was 19 officially, but 
I think looking back, I had symptoms from about 15, 16. Um, it was just, to, to put it bluntly, it was just unbelievably shocking how difficult it was to get that treated and taken seriously. And there were so many problems along the way. Um, one of the first um, roadblocks that I came up against was actually lack of knowledge about how to do the testing for that correctly. The main issue being was that um, the doctors that I saw in Perth didn't seem to be aware that certain medications need to be discontinued for um, AM cortisol testing to be accurate, mm. um, particularly like in terms of uh, birth control pills and things like that. Um, they can give an artificial elevation of cortisol um, in the blood sample. And so it was initially completely overlooked because it was something that was tested quite early on as part of a bunch of other tests I had trying to figure out uh, what was happening and it all came back normal. So I, I too, of course, knowing nothing about this at the time, I went, okay, cool, it's normal. We'll move on to looking at some other type of problem. Um, but I really started to notice that um, the more my steroid dose increased, the worse my symptoms seemed to get. And I ended up looking up online the side effects of uh, steroid use. Uh, this is oral mm -hmm. steroids like uh, pregnisolone and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and something that came up was this, uh, that certain individuals are more sensitive than others to the suppression of the adrenal glands due to the uh, disruption of the HPA axis. And um, I brought this up with my doctor and was told flat out that um, that wasn't true and that is not a problem that exists. Um, I actually wrote an article about this too for my blog with a ton of journal articles and references. And I will, I will send it to anybody who is listening to this who still thinks uh, that it's not a real thing. You know, um, Obviously, it's not something that happens to everyone, but there, there is significant evidence that... Um, a certain subset of the population is sensitive to that uh, impact from long-term steroid use. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so just, just, just for my knowledge, is yeah. it you were taking, you were taking the steroids, and was it when you stopped the steroids and you noticed that you were getting the effects, or was it you were taking more and more steroids and you were getting the symptoms concurrently? Okay, so I would say that. Um, the short answer to that is both. So mm -hmm. I was definitely having uh, symptoms that were getting worse in severity um, while my steroid dose was increasing, my inhaled and oral steroid dose. But when I, um, you know, I had patches where my asthma was in more of a crisis state and I needed to take a short course of much, uh, uh, not stronger, but just more milligrams of, yeah. prednisolone and after that was uh completed that's when my symptoms became just unbearable mm. yeah mm -hmm. I got you I got you sort of yeah. like um your adrenal glands were like ah oh, well somebody else is working for me so I'll just go on holiday yeah I mean that's that's pretty much what it is it's pretty much what it is <laughs> 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 why does why why does why does why does our glands need to shut off? Yeah, no, that that yep. that's really unfortunate to hear. That's really un disappointing, I guess, to to hear that that you were dismissed by your um, doctor at that time. Did you have a feeling that you had uh, hyperadrenalism the first time you went to seek help? 
Um, so I didn't really have, I suppose, like the language and knowledge to say, oh, I have hypoadrenalism. It was just more that I had read about this as a potential long-term side effect of mm. um, the medication in terms of the physical symptoms and things like that. Um, I did end up um, just one day insisting on being referred to an endocrinologist for further testing. Um, and he actually redid the AM cortisol test with the appropriate amount of time for me to withdraw from my other medications um, beforehand. And that's when it came back as significantly lower than what it should have been, which that was definitely the thing that set me off on the right path because it was some solid clinical evidence that something was wrong. Um, But I was still met with a lot of um, dismissal in terms of how bad the symptoms were. And I think also... I think there was an element of fear with um, taking me off steroids in terms of my asthma. So I understand it was like a little bit of a complicated issue in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there was definitely a perception that, you know, the symptoms couldn't really be that bad, even though uh, from a, I'm not sure what the word is, analysis perspective, Um what, what would you call it, The um, all the numbers on the page that you get after you get your blood test? Yeah, I think analysis would work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 analysis, yeah. Yeah, yeah, from a, like a clinical analysis perspective, it looked bad. Yeah, in fact, this exact phrase was said to me, um, you know, it looks bad from a insert word here perspective, but it's just not actually that bad. Um it was very much like smashing my head into a brick wall at that point. Um, I eventually, because I just kept coming back and complaining because I was starting to develop a little bit more courage and stubbornness by then because it had been a few years. <laughs> um, I was eventually sent for an insulin tolerance test. Um, mm-hmm. uh, would you like me to explain what yeah, that is? Yeah, no, definitely or... explain what that is because I think uh, – well, I personally don't know what it is. Some people listening will let know. Um, sure. Some others, it, is, um, it is a test that's not very often performed. And <laughs> it's quite funny, like, when um, when I called the lab to schedule it, there was a very specific lab. And um, the initial uh, person that I spoke to didn't know what it was <laughs> when I called them to try and book the test. So um, I'm just going to pull out my notes here from when I wrote about it because I just want to make sure I get everything technically correct. Um, okay so the difference between these two tests is the am cortisol test is obviously the go-to one where your Mm -hmm. resting cortisol is getting measured first thing in the morning whereas the insulin tolerance test is actually measuring how your adrenal glands and pituitary gland respond to a situation of simulated physiological stress Mm-hmm. So that's by done by um, you withdraw from medications again that might affect the results and you have a short period of fasting and then you're injected with short-acting insulin to push your blood sugars down and then repeated um, blood samples are taken while that process is occurring so that they can, uh, I suppose, see in comparison to the time elapsed to when you've been injected with your short-acting insulin where your emergency cortisol response is at it's not a very nice test to have done um it is some people get concerned about the potential dangers but it is actually done in a very safe way there's always multiple doctors present and um there is 
um yeah there's one who's always i wrote this down because this is really important there's one person there whose sole purpose is to inject you with de- de- uh, dextrose if needed if your blood sugars get too dangerously low that's their only job they stand there holding your arm with their needle so um yeah uh and in response to having that test done um my cortisol was super low. It it didn't even get to what the starting level should have been before we even started the insulin injections. So it was about mm-hmm. as bad as it could have been. Um, and basically, um, I'm trying to think of a nice way of saying this, but I can't think of one. You can edit this out if you want to. Um, the endocrinologist just absolutely shit the bed with these results, frankly. He, I have the perception that basically like he didn't get the results he wanted or was expecting. And so he decided to just not, not act on them. I, yeah. If you're listening, you owe me for therapy. <laughs> um, so, so it sounds like it wasn't, it was multiple doctors that kind of did. The yeah, whole yeah. I, I did end up switching endocrinologists after that. Oh, right. Okay, that's good. Okay. Whoops. Uh, yeah, that's not great. That. Um, um, I, I, hopefully, you'll be happy to know that this sort of secondary hyperadrenalism is now learnt in medical school. So we do know about it. Oh, we that makes me really happy. It. People take long-term steroids that their adrenal glands can go for a holiday and that mm. puts people in lots of trouble. Yeah. Um, and uh, hopefully, well, I mean, we are taught that if we do a test and we and something's wrong, we do need to act on it. <laughs> hopefully that's quite um, automatic, one would think. However, perhaps that wasn't the case with your endocrinologist. And I think another thing that I wanted to have, uh, oh, well, no, you keep going with your story. This is so fascinating. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I think um, I think that pretty much is the end of that story um, because, oh, actually, no, not, not quite. All right, I'll, I'll finish the end of the story. So that was, um, we ended up having a, a big sort of, um, disagreement at that appointment where he decided not to act on those test results um it got very very nasty with um, me breaking down in tears and him uh yelling at me and telling me to grow up uh which prompted me to have kind of a um I've always described it to people as a brain break I had sort of like an out-of-body experience where I got up and walked out of the room but like um not like I was like, oh, I'm angry at you, so I'm, I'm going to show you what for by getting up and walking out of the room. Like I just like my brain shut off and I just got up and walked out, um, which is probably something I should have explained before calling him out for owing me for therapy. But now you no, know why. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll be lucky if this endocrinologist who sounds like um, he's a senior doctor <laughs> is listening to our, our, our Yeah, our yeah. hopefully we're safe (laughs) yeah and so uh, that had like a really big psychological impact on me so I was Mm. even sorry my cat that's all good (laughs) can you hear that oh yeah yeah that's all good don't worry Yeah, so even though something was still wrong, um, it took me a really long time to address it because I just felt really stuck. 
I was still quite young and I suppose I didn't really, it seems obvious now, but I didn't really realize, oh, I can just go back and ask to be referred to a different endocrinologist. That just wasn't on my radar for some reason at that time. Um, Fortunately, my GP was still doing routine cortisol tests for me. And a little while Mm -hmm. later was when I got my test result where it was at um, zero slash undetectable from a blood analysis perspective. And um, I got told that I needed to go to the hospital straight away, Um, even though I was actually okay at the time. um, I was feeling relatively stable, but it just gave my GP a bit of a scare, the intensity of the test results, I think. Um, And I, I was really fine. I had an ECG and they checked my electrolytes and things like that. But all of that was actually remarkably stable, despite the fact that my cortisol was so low. Um, And then I got referred out again to a different endocrinologist, which is how um, I got well treated. I changed from um, serotide to Alvesco for my asthma inhaler, which um, that was chosen because there's some evidence that the uh, steroids from Alvesco are better at acting locally in the lungs and not traveling around the bloodstream. And that made a huge difference for me. And I also cut out my um, oral steroids what? Okay, that's actually not true. I stopped taking pregnisolone and I switched to cortisone instead. And then mm. we did like a program where I gradually weaned off it. So, you know, obviously that did provoke some symptoms temporarily, but it was done in a controlled way so that my adrenal glands um, and uh, um, for that word, hypothalamus. I'm just going to mumble it so people can't hear me pronounce it incorrectly. (laughs) The part of the brain that is responsible for telling you to make cortisol um, (laughs) could readjust to um, functioning normally, basically. And that made a huge difference. Like it, I, yes, I was absolutely stoked. Like within about three weeks, I just felt completely different. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. That's really good. It sounds like the interactions that you had with that second endocrinologist was miles better miles miles yep absolutely I wanted to know if you know we had a chat about I guess one of the the more negative aspects of healthcare but now on the flip side Mm. what are more positive interactions and if there were any particular characteristics that you think are important when it comes to being a healthcare worker Yeah, I I think the number one thing is just being attentive and willing to really look at the whole picture with your patient and dig into their history as much as possible. And I do completely understand that's really difficult. I do understand that a lot of doctors are completely overworked and don't get enough time with your patients. And unfortunately, I don't know how to fix that. All I know is that it does make a big difference to um patient happiness and patient outcomes. (laughs) Do Um, you think it's um, sort of important, let's say you don't get everything done in the first session to be willing to come to some, or or, or like, I guess from a clinician's point of view, they should be willing to offer more sessions so that they can get to know the patient better. But then on the patient side, for them to be willing and like motivated enough to come to the subsequent sessions. Yes, absolutely. In fact, I'll I'll tell you a funny anecdote to this effect. So I um I booked a routine appointment with my GP recently um, just to refill a few prescriptions and a few other things, but she um it ended up kind of 
I can't remember the specifics of this situation, but it ended up kind of spiraling into talking about something else that came up. And um, I remember saying, oh, I'm sorry, I've made you late. And she looked at me and she said, don't worry, I saw it was you coming in. So I expanded the appointment to a double. Oh, bless. (laughs) (laughs) She knew. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But I think what you've said is really spot on. I think, you know, if a doctor said to me, like, um, yeah, I think we need more time to discuss these issues. Can you please make another appointment? I think that would be great. And I think that, um, as you said, you've noticed already that um, a lot of people with chronic illnesses are coming in with um, some psychological resistance to talking to doctors or maybe some bad experiences that have shaped how they feel about going to the doctor. I think potentially that would actually give them a big boost in confidence and willingness to open up because it's a really clear way of indicating that you're willing to listen and take the time with them that they need. Mm-hmm. So apart from being attentive um, and sort of treating a patient, oh, actually, what? maybe you could give us a better picture about what do you mean um, by treating the whole person? What does that mean to you? Yeah, so I think... Um... This is something that goes both ways in terms of doctor responsibility and patient responsibility. Um, Mm -hmm. There were a lot of times that I went to my doctor and said, oh, um, I have another sinus infection or, oh, my back's really hurting still. And I got given, you know, it's not like I was denied care. I got given, you know, there were some times I needed antibiotics or I just needed painkillers or I needed to be referred out to a physical therapist for my back. And I got all of those things. Uh, But what I really needed was somebody to say, I don't really think it's normal that you keep getting infections and random pains and horrific injuries. Maybe we should talk about that as a whole and talk about what might be causing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like um, instead of just treating one episode at a time, putting it all together. um, And I'm I'm, I'm assuming that you sort of saw the same GP for multiple times. Um, Yeah, I did. When I lived in Perth especially, I did. I think uh, also in terms of treating the whole person, I think having a good balance with between things like medication and also functional solutions. So uh, I have been given medication since moving to Belgium, which has been quite life-changing, but I also have done more physical therapy and also hydrotherapy. And I've also taken up the use of some adaptive equipment as well. And what's really made the difference for me is um, – using all of those things to work together as a Mm -hmm. solution rather than I feel like there's this odd kind of dichotomy in medicine sometimes where some doctors are very resistant to prescribing pain medication which is completely understandable because there are obviously risks associated with that but I think sometimes we do just need pain medication um, (laughs) even if it's just to protect our mental health and coping ability or they are fine with prescribing pain medication but the patient really has to push for um more of an intervention of other kinds like physical therapy or um something like that Mm. and I think you bring up a really in uh you know sort of a good point I guess to our listeners out there who are currently in medical school Mm -hmm. this is why um non-pharmacological management options is so important because when it comes to chronic illnesses it's not just about the medications that we give patients it's about ensuring that they've got functional help functional equipment 
access to different forms of therapy. You know, in Jess's case, it's for you, it's really important that you have hydrotherapy and physical therapy. Um, but for other patients, it would be different. It's really important mm. that we think of not just medication and surgery as our two prongs of management, but um, other forms of uh, other forms of therapy as well. And if we get stuck um, accessing allied health and getting them to help, um, because you know, as uh, yeah, I was previously an allied health student, and I can tell you that allied health students know zero, zero, nothing about, not much about medications, but they do know a lot about how um, how a person can function and how to help a person achieve and optimize their function. I could not agree more. I would actually love it if doctors, you know, brought up things more like the use of specialized equipment or mobility aids or um, other accommodations they could have at school or work to help them. Um, Even though I do use a lot of things like that now, um, they're basically all things that I have thought of myself or, you know, I've had the idea, but I've still brought it up to my doctor. But I think like a lot of people might be kind of scared to ask about that because I feel like there is still a little bit of a stigma attached to it. So yeah, I think it would be great. And that actually ties in, I think, to what we were talking about earlier about asking for specific examples about how people are being affected in their day-to-day life. Because if you know that, I think that could give you a great um, insight into what other things might be able to be suggested in terms of functional solutions like that. Mm-hmm, definitely. So now that we've talked about the positive interactions that you've had in healthcare, what are some changes that you think we the industry could benefit from? Okay, so the primary thing is I would like to see medical professionals take greater responsibility for not traumatising their patients, to put it bluntly. <laughs> I think that mm-hmm. there is a real lack of awareness about how much it um, impacts our ability to seek out medical care in the future and, you know, also our ability to have clear, productive conversations with doctors Um I know for quite a while after the interaction that I had with the endocrinologist that I spoke to you about earlier, I actually had a real problem Mm -hmm. with having panic attacks in doctor's appointments. And thankfully I've worked past that now with a psychologist, but that really impaired my ability to communicate clearly about my needs. And it was a real problem. Um, Mm. And I think along the same vein, um, you know, you really need to, avoid dismissing a patient's symptoms at all costs. And in my personal opinion, that also includes dismissing a patient's symptoms as psychosomatic, unless you have a really, really solid reason for that. And, you know, I think that if you honestly believe that there are psychological issues at play that could be so severe that they are creating, you know, physical symptoms or imagined symptoms in a patient, or that there is like some other psychological reason that they might be feigning symptoms. I think that's really serious and I think they still need help. And, you know, whether that's being referred to some kind of psychological support or just further investigation, you know, that's still (sighs) mental illness is still in illness and it should be treated as such. Like I think it really angers me when I um, basically see and hear it just being as a used as an excuse to fob people off. I just don't think that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and one thing to add there is I think even though we might think, you know, one of the differential diagnoses is is it a psychosomatic illnesses, I think 
part of the whole psychosomatic is that is real to the patient. Just because it's psychological doesn't mean that they're not experiencing these things. And I guess this kind of comes from, uh, you know, I, I haven't really talked to you about this, Jess, but mm-hmm. um, I, the last time I was in hospital, I was diagnosed with a functional disorder. Okay. Functional disorders are, are known to be psychosomatic. Mm-hmm. Um, and definitely the care that I received completely, like once psychosomatic was whispered, the care went from we care about you to let's try to get you out of the hospital as quick as we can. But in the end, I think as clinicians or, pe- or, or people who are going to be clinicians, we need to be very careful because psychosomatic doesn't mean that the patient is symptom free. It still means that they're experiencing these symptoms. Um, and yes, you definitely brought up a really good point about uh, doctors taking responsibility about traumatizing patients. Because I think one of the double edged swords about being, you know, having a relatively privileged position in society of having that doctor uh, degree mm-hmm. is that people look up to you and people look for you for answers. Mm-hmm. But if you flip that round and you start berating your patient, mm-hmm. telling your patient that what they're telling you is lies, then I think it's fair enough that not only do they think that you're a horrible human, but they'll actually um, they'll actually become traumatized by the fact that someone that they looked up to has yeah. just put them down. And I think that's something that we do need to be quite careful of, and we do, do need to be quite um, mindful of what we say to other people because we start off with a position of power, which means that if we say negative things, it's going to hurt, you know, 10 times more than if somebody else on the side of the street or maybe, you know, sometimes maybe even like a friend where it's more level, a more Mm. level playing field, it's going to hurt much more. And the consequence of that is this patient, okay, maybe they're fine now, but if they do suffer from something even worse and they don't come to seek help, uh, help, doesn't necessarily have to be from that doctor that has been really mean to them, but if mm-hmm. they don't come to hospital in time, then you know that's much more dangerous for them, and also it's going to have much worse repercussions. Um, so I thought, yeah, that, those are two really, really important things um, that I think you've brought up. Mm-hmm. So this is another thing that I think younger or newer doctors tend to do a really good job of, but mm-hmm. I just wanted to reiterate, reiterate this just in case, because I think it's so important. And that's consider that probably there are rare and complex conditions that you haven't had adequate training in medical school about and be willing to do further reading and research about them if a patient comes to you about them or with possible symptoms that could be associated with that condition. And I say that knowing how overworked you are and you don't really have time to do that. But (laughs) (laughs) I just think that um, be aware that you probably haven't had adequate training in medical school about certain rare or complex conditions. And if at all possible, be willing to do further reading or research about them if a patient comes to you about that issue or with symptoms that could be attributed to an issue like that. Um, My current doctor is great with this kind of thing and it's something that I really appreciate about her. 
because I think it allows you to take a more individualized approach to your patient. I know that I am on some therapies that are a little bit more, I guess, emerging would be the best Mm. way to describe it. There's not really, I guess, adequate evidence yet that it is a surefire way to fix or treat a certain problem, but there is emerging research on it. And um, there are certain things that I just really wanted to try with the help of my doctor. And I think that um, being willing to work with the patients on an individual level like that with different treatments and even when it comes to medication, working on individualized doses Um, I think that's really important because different things work for different people and everyone's body is different. And a lot of the times we don't really have a way of knowing how different people's bodies are going to react to certain medications, you know, citing my um, adjustment to duloxetine the first time that I took it. I know probably um, some of you are listening and thinking, yeah, well, no Sherlock, but it would amaze you how many doctors don't necessarily make that a comfortable situation to make uh, treatment programs more of an open discussion like that. And I think if you have any previous medical trauma, some patients are genuinely scared to come back and say something didn't work for them or that it gave them weird side effects. Mm. I mean, I only have anecdotal evidence of that, of course, but that's something I've really noticed from talking to um, other people through the blog and things like that. And I guess like an example of that would be you know, with my doctor, I feel like my treatment is a little bit more of an open discussion rather than just being told what to do. So like I explain what my goals are and she suggests things and I try them and then we discuss it afterwards. So for example, um, I recently started beta blockers and they have actually helped me feel a lot less dizzy, but they are not really helping with my migraines, which is what I actually went on them for. And so I came back and told her that and I said, you know, like what else can we try? Should I should I keep taking them for the dizziness? Should I not? Should we try something completely different? And yeah, it's just more of a discussion like that. And I think it's really important, especially if you're dealing with multiple or complex conditions, you need to be involved in your own healthcare because the situation can become so complex that you have to be the number one authority on the situation to a certain extent, like not the number one authority on what to actually do about the problems, but the number one authority of deciding what the problems are and whether you're satisfied and making good progress with treatments and your goals or not, because that's something a doctor can't do for you, but doctors can enable you to do that in a comfortable way. Mm-hmm. So sort of um, taking taking a greater responsibility over your healthcare, but at the same time, I guess that means that you're more knowledgeable about your own self as well. Exactly. I think trying different medications and adjusting to the potential side effects of those is very what can be very challenging and time consuming and i do understand that doctors don't want to scare us off by listing every possible side effect and in a lot of cases you know side effects actually are quite rare even though there might be scary stuff listed in the leaflet but don't let us be blindsided by um medications that are known to cause side effects so Um, I know I mentioned before, I'm a lot happier on duloxetine and I'm really well adjusted Mm -hmm. now, but I was not warned about how challenging the starting side effects of SNRIs are. And I had never been Mm -hmm. on an antidepressant before or um, 
any kind of medication that had hefty side effects like that. And I, on the third day, I actually started having like minor hallucinations and having like this episode of like really intense cold sweating. And I damn near nearly went to the ER because I thought I had lost my mind because I had no idea it was from the duloxetine because I was just, it just wasn't on my radar that medications could produce side effects like that. <laughs> so yeah. just, yeah, just a little reminder for everybody, just a little heads up will be nice so we don't all go clog up the ER. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. I think that, actually that's a really good thing because um, yeah. uh, I was just doing a medication errors um, module of a couple of weeks ago, but they were saying something like, I really do need to get these um statistics correct but a significant amount of, of patients who present to er are either due to a medication errors or side effects um really? and okay. yes uh, which is kind of depressing really because yeah. you know we've set it up a system to help people but yeah. we've somehow managed to do the complete loop and send them back in <laughs> um uh, i think belgium's sort of a so isn't it a kind of like a got a medicare system as well yeah, so we have, um, it's not quite universal healthcare, but we have quite um, heavily subsidized healthcare. So we pay um, social security and then also a either monthly or annual fee to something called a mutual, which is like uh, the public health insurance fund here. Um, and then they cover the majority of things or at least a big chunk of them. And there are certain situations where doctors can write up um uh, like I guess your need for extra services which has been really good mm -hmm. so like me for example I just got approved to have up to 60 physical therapy sessions in a year which Ooh, I don't know if I want to use all of those because <laughs> that sounds exhausting but it's pretty amazing that I um, have that in my back pocket if I need it now <laughs> mm, yeah um, yeah but basically I was just saying like you know with I guess Belgium's health system and Australia's health system because it's mainly subsidized by the government we're using all these taxpayers money to sort of almost correct the mistakes that we've made or um, I think one thing that we do need to practice on is just patients a little bit more information I mean we might be very short on time but it's going to be better to tell our patients the full yeah. Yeah, like what you said the full side effect profile of a particular medication rather than leaving them in the dark and then one day when they're like oh why do I have this um why am I hallucinating? Oh, why, why do I feel even sadder now that I've started an antidepressant? Which kind of doesn't make sense. But that is a very common side effect of, um, I'm not so sure about SNRIs, but SSRIs, um, which is the number one antidepressant that we give out. Yeah. It's kind of ironic that within that first sort of six weeks, the they, they've got a really high risk of feeling even more depressed. Yeah, I have heard that. And again, I completely understand you. I don't want to scare everybody, but even if it's just to say like, hey, just letting you know, like it, it can get a little worse before it gets better. So just make sure you have, you know, support around you this weekend or something like. Mm, exactly. And that took like, what, five seconds. So <laughs> that's something that we can all um, pick up and, and ensure that we uh, fully educate our patients. I know that one thing that you were really keen to have a chat about was about doctors with chronic dis uh, chronic illnesses and chronic mm. diseases because in the end medical students and doctors are people and they are people with chronic diseases and chronic illnesses uh i know you think it's really important to have people with chronic diseases and chronic illnesses um get into medicine and what what makes you think what what drives this sort of thought that it's really important to have them into the medical degree 
Well, I think it's just kind of like asking why why is it important to have women in medicine? Like, why would you exclude a huge subset of the population in an issue that affects all humans at one point in their lives? And, you know, if you want me to go into the specifics more, I'd also say that um, people with chronic illnesses bring a different perspective and potentially real hands-on experiences of what it's like to be unwell, you know, even if Mm. they're not actually specifically sharing a health problem with one of their patients, they know what it's like to be unwell and they may have specific insight into how to treat patients, you know, practically or just emotionally as well in a way that will be beneficial to them. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think students as well as junior doctors find really difficult um, in uh, as a, you know, because I've met quite a few students with chronic, chronic illnesses. One thing that I find really interesting is they tend to hide it. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily know the ifs and, you know, why, and I guess it might be a bit muddy to go into the specifics, Mm -hmm. but what do you think, what do you think should, you know, should should a student do? Um, Do you think that it's beneficial to hide it? Do you think it's probably like, what are sort of ways in which a student can become more authentic with or, or embody their illnesses a little bit more? I think that's really difficult. I do completely understand why people do hide it. And I don't know if you find that there is a more of a stigma in the medical student community compared to other communities, but I think just in general, there is still a little bit of a stigma attached to it. And yeah, I think that um, I personally, for myself, I don't think hiding it was beneficial. I think at the time I thought it was beneficial, but I kind of feel like it was just delaying the inevitable. You know, Mm. I reached a certain point where I did need help and I did need accommodations and I needed to have people in my life who understood the choices that I needed to make and I needed to distance myself from people who chose not to try and see things from my perspective, which is so much easier said than done. And obviously it's also a privilege to be able to do that. I want to acknowledge that. But you can't make someone empathize with you. You can't make someone see things from your perspective. And I think the best thing to do is just lead by example as much as possible. So if you have a chronic illness, you know, I really support seeking accommodations, whether that's in school or work or whatever it is, using them to the best of your ability and then living your life in a way that suits you and the body and mind that you were given. And I am sure that if you did the hard yards to get into and continue with medical school, that you're going to succeed. And then you're going to be an example. You know, I know it's hard if you yourself have trouble with feeling accepted in school, but then, you know, if you can lead by example like that and not hide it, you know that you are going to have set a really important precedent for the next person that comes in who has a chronic illness. You know, they'll, you know, maybe younger students are going to be like, oh, remember so-and-so who um, had hypoadrenalism and it took them an extra 18 months to finish their degree, but they ended up graduating with like really good grades and now they work at X place, you know, and they'll remember that next time somebody else with a chronic health condition comes into their school. Hmm, Well, who's open about it. 
yeah oh uh, yeah yeah that's true, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah I think just thinking about my cohort now the people who I know who have a chronic illness aren't super open about it which I can mm-hmm. understand you know there, there are I think look there's stigma and then there's expectations and I think a lot of people want to meet expectations or put place very very high expectations on themselves I mean I'd probably do that too I think it's a, it's kind of like a, a I think a, you know we have to thank it because that's probably how we managed to get into medical school yeah but at the same time it becomes sort of a hindrance when it comes to um truly accepting what a capacity actually is I feel like uh, a lot of people like to put in 110, 120%, very much like music, you know, you want you want to meet certain expectations. Um, and I think one thing is the access. You know, I was having to think about this. I was like, oh, do we have access? Like, is accessibility there? And I think mm-hmm. if we have, if, you know, if we're talking about um, physical accessibility, well, I think it's actually not too bad because, the hospital is designed to be accessible and obviously patients are wheeled in beds all the time mm-hmm. so if you had to use a mobility aid yep. it shouldn't be an issue but I can understand when it comes to psychological emotional that becomes a huge barrier with your experiences what's helped you gotten over the psychological and emotional aspects of having a chronic illness well, I would say that there's three things. So I think that the first thing is what I talked about before. So um, actively choosing to distance myself from people who weren't a good influence on my mindset and who chose not to try and see things from my perspective or who I felt didn't respect the fact that I needed to make some unconventional choices in my life. And I think latching on to different and better relationships, both in person and online with people who get it, whether that's just someone who has no idea about chronic illness but is a good listener and a good friend or somebody, you know, that I've met through the blog who we have a lot in common and we can be in solidarity with each other through those challenges. Um, The second thing is uh, seeing a pain psychologist. And I think, you know, you don't – well, in my case, you know, I didn't want to see somebody that's going to tell me that the pain is all in my head or anything like that, but more somebody who's going to acknowledge that I have a lot of pain to deal with and that I needed support to navigate the psychological aspects of that. And, you know, if that somehow reduces my stress or how I hold myself and, you know, improves my chronic pain a little bit by improving my psychological health, that's more of a bonus. That's not the primary goal to fix a physical problem through psychological intervention it's difficult of course because the two are inherently linked but hopefully Mm. you understand what I mean um yeah yeah and also just addressing things like um previous trauma and any negative or limiting beliefs that I had about myself that I developed um in my younger years that's been really great um and the final that I said three but now I can't remember what the third thing was um duloxetine Love that stuff. No, that's not actually what I was going to say the third thing was, but that has actually been really helpful. Maybe maybe it'll come back. It might come back. I I I will come back to that if I remember it, yeah. I was like, deloxetine, sorry. I was like, I don't. Um, No, I was actually going to ask 
for I wanted to know what the difference between a psychologist and a pain psychologist was. Oh, um, so in terms of qualifications, I'm not sure what the technical definition would be, but um, in my case, a pain psychologist is somebody who specializes in helping people with the psychological impact of generally chronic pain, but it doesn't always have to be. Um, they also tend to have more knowledge of working with patients with chronic illnesses as well. And um, in my case as well, I've been quite fortunate in that my psychotherapist is knowledgeable about some of the issues in medicine and in institutional systems in general and how that can affect people. So just having someone to talk to about that who has that kind of grounding or background and understanding has been really helpful. That's fantastic. And is there anything else that you would like to talk about? Um, I do have some thoughts on making education more accessible to people with illnesses, which I would love to mention if we have time. Of course. Okay, great. So I'd like to think that a lot of these would be applicable to medical school, but I also think that they could be helpful for anybody in education. And I think the main thing is, as a society, we need to start seeing chronic illness and disability and the insight and empathy that it brings as an advantage. I think that we as humans all have different strengths and weaknesses because of our genetics, our upbringing, because of all kinds of factors. And if you have a chronic illness, it just means that you have a different combination of those strengths and weaknesses to maybe some of your peers. And I think if we could just all work together and play to our strengths in that way, we'd be much better off. Um, I do also have some practical suggestions that don't involve overhauling our entire society though too. So don't worry. <laughs> um, I think, yes. So one of them was normalizing online education and other alternative ways of meeting course requirements. Obviously this is very tricky for some things, but I'd like to think that COVID potentially has gone a long way towards helping us realize that that is possible. And I think it'd be great if we could keep that momentum going because that's really beneficial to a lot of people. And similarly, normalizing part-time study or extended periods of study to complete courses. And as you said before, not glorifying working ourselves into the ground. I mean, hard work is great and a very admirable quality, but I think hard work within your, um, with chronic fatigue, we say energy envelope a lot, um, in a way that's not going to be detrimental to your health, because I mean, that's not good for anyone's long-term health, but people with chronic illnesses are going to feel the effects of that sooner. And I, I think, you know, they might even be deterred from enrolling in challenging courses if they know that that's the culture and they know that they can't really keep doing that in a sustainable way. Mm -hmm. And I also think, and, and this is really important, we need to actually make it financially viable for students to be able to do part-time study or extended periods of study. So at the moment, it is stupidly hard to get approved for things like uh, Centrelink payments during uh, the four periods of part-time study. Like I know for myself, when I applied for just one semester of part-time study, um, I... I mean, even though I had a long-term condition, I had to do it as a temporary incapacity because that's all I was eligible for. And that was so difficult and took literal months to get that signed off on. Um, mm -hmm. And 
because you know a lot of places they don't really have things like scholarships that are actually tailored for people with health conditions or you know even more complexly it's complexly a word complicatedly you know (laughs) students who maybe have chronic health challenges combined with other challenges like socioeconomic disadvantage and you know if you're already struggling to keep up with school because of illness you're not going to be able to go pick up a part-time job or you're more than a part-time job to be able to support yourself at the same time are you Mm -hmm. and you know that's not even taking into account all the extra hidden costs of being unwell like Mm -hmm. things like physical therapy that might not be fully covered by insurance adaptive equipment psychological support and like the co-payments for all the other things like that so is there any other tips or advice that you'd like to give to students or junior doctors with chronic illnesses I would say, if at all possible, never ever compare yourself to other people and other students. I feel from personal experience, that's just going to bring you a lot of unnecessary unhappiness. And I know it's a lot easier said than done, but especially I think if you've had a chronic illness from birth or a young age, we all to a certain extent normalize what's happening to us. And it's so easy to look at people around you and think, why can't I do that? Or why do certain things seem to come so much easier to people? But The reality is you probably have your own challenges that other people don't, maybe some that you don't even realize, you know, frankly, your life is actually probably more difficult than you realize that it is. That's something, um, you know, at the risk of sounding self-serving, that's something I've kind of realized through writing about my own life through my blog. Um, And there's just, there's nothing to be gained by comparing even, and even to other people who share the same health challenges as you, because as we talked about before, disabilities can be dynamic and they do affect different people in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that could probably be advice for all humans, to be honest. But um, oh, yeah, it, probably especially for uh, students <laughs> with chronic illnesses. And sometimes I feel like there's a lot of negativity towards the idea of making illness or disability part of your identity. But I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. I think for a lot of us, it affects so many aspects of our lives. And for some of us, it's actually easier to build an identity outside of being unwell once we've fully accepted that it is a part of us and that it is having an impact on our choices and how we live our lives. And, you know, further to that, don't waste energy on trying to force people to understand your view of yourself if you make a decision to make it a part of your identity or to don't try and force people to understand the other choices that you're making. Um, It might sound a bit harsh, but you know, you can always find new people if you need to, who will respect the choices that you've made. And I think that you should take advantage of whatever accommodations you can. So that could be formal accommodations with your school, or it could be something like using adaptive equipment at home, like a shower chair or knee braces. Um, And you know, if you're not sure where to start with that, I think it's great to meet people who have similar challenges in life to you. So I have met all kinds of people through my help, my help, (laughs) my work with the help app. And um, I've actually learned all kinds of tips and tricks about hypermobility from YouTube. And that's been great. And finally, it's okay to shop for doctors sometimes. I think, you know, being dismissed or seeing a doctor that has outdated information about something, Mm. you know, like I've been, I've been told before, like I've had a doctor before who doesn't air quotes 
believe in EDS and you best believe I didn't go back after that first appointment, you know, you can get the support you need from another doctor. And if you have a complex health situation, um, you might sometimes start to feel like the problem is with you. But I think as long as you are being clear and honest about what's happening with you, the problem's probably not with you. I think, unfortunately, some of the issues we've talked about in this podcast are a little bit of an epidemic. And I think you really need someone who will take the time with you and that you feel comfortable sharing really personal things with. Mm, mm, very, very powerful messages. And definitely, you know, there's in the same way there's, that there is a spectrum of patients, there's also a spectrum of doctors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for for people who are listening to this and thinking about specialties that they want to get into and you know you were talking about relationships that you had and if they were you know not very useful to your well-being or they were actively harming you I mean I think that's sort of the same way to approach um certain uh you know when you're trying to figure out what hospital you want to work in or when you're trying to figure out what specialty you're trying to be in be mindful that you'll be around people a lot you'll be around Mm -hmm. your colleague a lot and I think it would be really, really unfortunate if um, you were stuck in a specialty where your chronic illnesses or your chronic disabilities were not able to be recognised or people were actively trying, you know, uh, forming, bad, uh, forming bad stigmas around them. Um, so get to know, I guess, what the culture of the particular places you want to work at uh, and also the culture of the particular spe- specialities because in the end they are groups and pockets of human beings um, and you want to work somewhere where you're going to be accepted not you want to work ter- terribly hard to get into a place where you're not accepted at all absolutely and um, you know, you're just one of you know the side links you know that's not fun and that's not really a great way to live either mm. Thank you so much for all the information that you've given us today, Jess. It's always really nice to have a chat to not only, I know we've had lots of guests who were from the medical profession, but it's really nice to sometimes have a chat to people on the other side of things. Um, as you said, a professional patient. I feel like that would be a really good um, a good episode name. <laughs> but we'll see what this episode becomes. Now, is there anything else that you want to have a chat about? No, I think we've covered everything. I have to say, as much as I'm a fan of professional patient, I also, I love what you said um, before, consumer of health. Oh, yeah. I think, um, professional consumer of health. I think I might add that to my Instagram bio, consumer of health. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, I, I would be so honoured. Um, but no, I look, I think we're, we're all consumers of health. I guess some of us are more consume a little bit more than others. Um, and that's just part of being human and part of being an individual. But thank you so much for sharing your journey. I know parts of it would have would have probably brought up a lot of emotions. I know at one point um, you were nearly in tears and I'm, I'm so grateful that you were able to share your story. And I hope that, um, you know, our listeners out there, uh, maybe you know someone who's gone through a similar situation or perhaps you yourself are going through that situation, you know, in the end. Ampule, yes, we're mostly uh, for medical students, but, it, you know, we're on Spotify as well as Apple, so anyone can listen to it. So if you think someone can relate to um, this episode, why not share it? Um, and also I really liked um, how you've, we had a really nice chat about, you know, what the interactions with health workers were like. As you said, being a professional consumer of healthcare, um, 
you know, the positive interactions you've had, but also the interactions that have made you almost scared to use healthcare. And then um, lastly, having a chat about um, improving, I guess, the accessibility of medical school to people with chronic illnesses, because yes, we can learn from a lot of people. I think the more diverse uh, medical school becomes, I think that will actually be of a great of a great benefit to healthcare because then we'll have lots of different ways to look at problems. We'll have lots of different ways to look at solutions as well. Um, thank you so much, Jess. Thank you so much for having me and for giving me the platform to talk about these issues. I obviously have been personally affected by them, but also I know a lot of other people that have been too. And it actually gives me a lot of hope to know that medical students and our future generation of doctors are going to listen to this. Yeah, and I think um, I, I look forward to what the feedback we get. Um, and also, uh, yeah, I look forward to, uh, hopefully this will sort of be a springboard to conversations and real, you know, I think it's just as important to acknowledge the difficult conversations as it is to acknowledge all the jokes and the funniness that we had um, <laughs> together sharing today. Uh, well, um, I guess we'll wrap it up. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, Jess, we... <laughs> Thank you for this. This was really good. My pleasure.